Hi listeners, my name is Nat. I am the founder of Storytellers. I wanted to reach out and let you know that I'm sitting down with some amazing people and they're giving me a lot of tips and tools to use as we build out the product. So I wanted to share that content with you. I apologize in advance for the air conditioner unit that's on in the background. I promise as we record these interviews, the sound quality will definitely get better. Just stick with it and reach out if you have any questions. Hi listeners, today I'm sitting with the lovely Andy Kelly. He is a founder, producer, and acquisition manager. He owns his own company called Curiouser and Curiouser Pictures, and is producing a short film that's called Luna's Ghost, as currently executive produced by Stephen Fry. He additionally works at Headgear Films. They have co-produced several productions such as Churchill, Black Mass, Bell, Pride and Prejudice, and Zombies, and more. Headgear films have other productions that I haven't mentioned, which have superstar actors such as uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Michael Fassbender, Glenn Close, Lily James, and Holiday Granger. So welcome, Andy, and impressive background. Um, if you could say hi to the listeners. Hello. Uh, I've met none of those people. But I'm <laughs> just to knock myself down a little bit there. Um, I should warn everyone that Andy will be modest throughout this whole interview um, and pretend like everything I said was a lie. <laughs> so uh, it's just a very I don't know if it's just a British thing. I just I can't deal with compliments at all. When people do, it, I just squirm. It's very nice. Obviously, I'd rather that than them telling me how awful I am. But nonetheless, I just I, I squirm. I don't know why. It's just embarrassed. Well, you should be proud of yourself. Yeah. Proud of all your accomplishments. Thank you. Um, I won't say it again. <laughs> yes, yeah, so my therapist will deal with that. That's her problem. So. Um, so you're here today because we love to uh, pick your brain and know your perspective. So let's get started. Great. Right? Yeah. Why do you like storytellers? Ooh. Well, I think um, the best kinds of storytellers are ones that um, they try and bridge sort of different cultures together. Um, and I think that's kind of fundamental in our uh, growth as people, that we should be in uh, constantly being encouraged to empathise with either your next door neighbour or someone who lives in a completely different country. And I think stories kind of frame that rather difficult concept quite nicely and they make it, I suppose, more palatable for people that wouldn't know where to begin. And I think storytelling is a very good starting point for making that um, a slightly more uh, emotional and a slightly more interesting journey as opposed to as I say, not knowing where to begin and therefore just kind of being overwhelmed by it and not really trying. So I think story, the best kind of storytelling, at least, encourages that. When you were younger, I mean, I know a little bit about you, so I know the answer, but for everyone else, when you were younger, were you a daydreamer? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes to my <laughs> my detriment, <laughs> like in classes, uh, I would be sitting there and daydreaming um and uh, yeah, just thinking of imaginary worlds and wanting to sort of dive back into books and films and letting my imagination run wild, thinking, oh, what would happen to them? You know, once the credits come up or once the book closes. So, oh yeah, totally, totally a daydreamer. Did you ever, from your daydreams, write your own uh, stuff, like your own? Yeah, daydream? I did. Yeah, and and. It's funny, like, I, I would always sort of, everyone would always say, like, write what you know, which actually I was always slightly rubbish at, because I would write it in a sort of, like, a list. I'd go, like, well, I woke up, and then I had an argument with my mum, because apparently that breakfast is stale now, and I shouldn't be eating it. And so it would just be a very, like, boring list like that, and I found that the stories that 
I could write well like fairy tales. I mean, there's a reason why it's called Curiouser and Curiouser because like, like things like Alice in Wonderland and those kinds of things, um, I was able to write well, and it sort of gave a. It, it, I sort of relearned that thing of write what you know because it doesn't necessarily have to be literally what you know. It can just be like you know these sort of conceptual ideas that you've come across before or an emotion or something that you kind of run with and you explore characters that have seen it before and so I think those sort of uh, those sort of experiences that I've had that are incorporated into a sort of fantastical setting is writing what you know it's just not necessarily you know literally what you know uh, well that's it's really interesting what you said because I think I kind of had an aha moment where you say write what you know, you're right, it doesn't actually have to be the literal things you're going through in life, it could be a feeling, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think if a lot of people write what they know as a feeling, where it could be adventure, it could be um, a magical, colorful kind of uh, daydream, mm. it would probably translate better, do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think so, absolutely. I think actually the, the, the best, oh, well, the works that I've responded to most strongly are ones that are like that, that you can sense sort of at the core of the story, there is this very real emotion that I think it's, on some level it's kind of universal and we all understand it, we may not understand you know uh, the ins and outs of this particular world that this author or this filmmaker has uh, set out, but we learn that as we go along. And the reason why you are tethered to that world is because you understand the emotions the characters are going through, and that sees you through all of the weird and wonderfulness of whatever it is that's uh, on the screen or on the page. So after graduating, how many jobs did you have before you settled at Headgear Films and also creating your own production company? Um, well, I initially started as a film journalist, which I did. I started doing that whilst I was at uni, um, and uh, and I worked in that for I think about a year and a half, or maybe a couple of years. Um, so you know, you are essentially just watching movies and talking about them, um, and then but then I sort of fell out of love with that because I mean, I, the digital uh, media sort of changed the landscape a little bit, where you had to be much more immediate with your responses to a film. So you would have PR people waiting outside a movie um, where you've just had a thousand ideas thrown at you and you want to digest them, but the, you're not given the, that chance. And then you have to say, oh, three stars, I guess. And then you've got to stick with it, however much it changes in your mind. And so I thought, well, that's, that's not what I wanted to get, you know, uh, get into this for. I wanted to have a bit more of a thoughtful process, but that didn't happen. So then I went into, um, I started interning at production companies um, which uh, I called about two, three hundred production companies. I mean, it, it took a while for anyone to entertain this specky kid who said it was not Kanye West to actually go and uh, go and work there. Um, and then finally, uh, a producer called Helen and Gladys, who worked at a company called Dan Films at the time, um, she was like the three hundred and first person that says, "Oh yes, come and have a chat." And and since then, I went on. I did about seven or eight internships in total. Um, so I worked at yeah, Dan Films, um, uh, Lionsgate, Studio Canal, Heyday Films, Pathé, uh, Sprout Pictures, which is Stephen Fry's production company. Um, and uh, before I eventually um, started working in development for a TV production company called Sugar Films. Um, and they were working on a Bill Cosby documentary at the time, so it was fairly enlightening. And you know, if, um, and then was that released or? Yeah, it went out on, on BBC Two, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's very very good. It's I mean, it's not the most pleasant watch, obviously, as it should you know as it shouldn't be, but it is very it's a very strong piece of work. Um, and then uh, I always knew I wanted to get into producing, um, 
And the thing with development is that, which is what I was doing in my internships, incidentally, um, with development, it's, it's not to downplay the work people do in development, but a lot of it is down to instincts. You kind of know if a script is good, you know if a story is working, and you sort of you know, know who would be good to put this together, etc. But what I didn't know, and what you can't really base on instinct, is learning the finances, learning those sort of more technical, perhaps less sexy, but very important pieces. Yeah. So I but you, you know, just to interject there, when you said the, the instincts of it, when do you think when you're reading something that instinct kicks kicks in? Is it at the five page mark? Is it at the one page mark? That ten page for you to say this is amazing? Yeah, it's interesting because everyone, I think everyone you'll speak to will say ten pages in and you'll know, you'll absolutely know if it's working or not. And it's true in some cases that you do know. Well, you know more if it's not working within the first 10 pages, because um, obviously the whole point is if you turn to page 11, then obviously there must be something there that's keeping you going. But I think it's all on a case by case. I don't think you can really know, because you know, it might be rubbish on pages one to 10, but page 11, all of a sudden it's Citizen Kane, you know? So it, 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 I mean, that's, it's very far and few in between those kinds of things. But I think um, normally for me, it's when, it's normally when I'm quite deep into a script, um, and there'll, there'll come a point where you'll, you'll almost forget sort of that you're on a train or that you're in your room or that you're outside or wherever. You'll forget where you are yeah. and you'll be able to see everything quite clearly. Yeah. Um, I think it's when, when you get into that part of it. And sometimes, you know, that means that it doesn't necessarily mean that the script is really working. It's going to be really brilliant. But there is something in there that's worth. There is a diamond in the rough there, however rough it may be. Um, so yeah, it, it varies, it really does vary, but a lot of industry veterans will say 10 pages and then that's it, but I think, um, I'm not sure. Have you, have you met the outlier script that, or writer that's made it past 10 pages, maybe at the 20th page, and they got you hooked um, to justify or combat the 10 page rule that big producers have? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I must have done um, because you do read lots of scripts um, and, uh, and <laughs> if you are just reading 10 pages for every script then there, there's also an awful lot of other ideas you're kind of neglecting in those other 90 or 80 pages um, I can't think off the top of my head I think there has been a few cases where there was an adaptation I think I remember there was, there was an adaptation of a book once I can't remember what it was called now I don't think it's been been made just yet well anyway and I've actually read the book um, and uh, the, I remember the first I think it was the first 15 pages they weren't working but they had stuck very closely with the book and so I, I understood that this was an adaptation they were trying to be, remain loyal to the source material but I remember having a conversation saying but this is an adaptation and some things are going to be inherently cinematic and some things are going to be inherently novelistic some things just aren't going to work um, on when it translates to the screen yeah. um, and so the, and, I, and yeah that I think was a discussion that we had I don't think they took that advice but still like, <laughs> you know, I, that was a situation where yeah I thought the first 10 pages aren't great but the rest of it's very good but I think I had faith in the source material that I knew that at some point this idea was going to come to fruition yeah. and it just didn't in those first few pages. Okay. Well, j just to jump back, I interrupted. You were doing development, mm. which is heavily on instinct, but you, you didn't have much exposure to the sexy part. Yeah. Not sexy, <laughs> sexy uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, financing uh, a film. What happened next? 
Uh, well, then I saw a job going at a company called Headgear Films, who I had heard of sort of indirectly through my internships. And I knew they worked in finance. wasn't sure what finance they did because obviously there are very there are different areas of finance within film. Um, and then uh, I I went to work there. I started out as an assistant there, and was and they shared an office with with a, a company called Bankside Films, where a sales company. Right. So it was a very sort of film business uh, exposed area, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, and I learned so much there within my first like six months, um, and I'm still learning now. And I've been there for three and a bit years. Um, there are so many areas to film finance, and every project brings brings in a new word or a term. That thankfully in our office we're all not too full of pride to go. Sorry, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and so our company works in what's called senior debt finance, which okay. basically means. Uh, the money is already there, but it's not in production's bank account quickly enough. So a company like Headgear will come in and we'll go, okay, well, you know what? We will cash flow that money that this person is holding and isn't going to release yet, and we'll put it in your bank account now so you can get moving with production. Um, so, for example, uh, if, if a production is filing for a tax credit, which I think in the UK it's like 20% of your budget, mm-hmm. HMRC will take forever to give you that money. Yeah. But Headgear will go, well, we'll give it to you now, and then we'll charge an interest, and, and, uh, you know, and, and we'll have it directed back to us. So it's kind of like a bank in that scenario. Yeah. Um, but then there's also another type of financing called gap financing, which is verging a little bit more into the sort of creative spheres of, we're relying on um, people buying this film, essentially, and so we need to make sure that the quality is good, and that's where I come in, and I'll read the script and sort of evaluate the package, which will consist of, you know, the script and who the director is, producer and their back catalogue, is there a market for this, you know, what comparisons can one make and what was their successes and failures, Um, and it's uh, sort of compiling all of that into a sort of neat little report that... Um, that people can read and find palatable to go yes or no, let's do it. Yeah, so you're like a risk assessment, you know? Yeah, kind of, kind of, yeah. Um, okay. Um, just did you do any traveling and experience different cultures and stories um, in between, you know, all those different jobs that you had? Not really, no. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm quite severely under, uh, uh, under-traveled. Um, uh, my family sort of quite uh, we're quite a working class family, and so traveling was always sort of separate agenda. To be perfectly honest, um, uh, no, not really. I mean, I mean, I remember the first well when I when my first trip to the Cannes Film Festival, that was the first time I got on a plane in probably about ten fifteen years. Yeah, um, and so I was so nervous <laughs> flying on that. But now it's like get out of the way. I need to get on the plane. But like now, <laughs> at the time, I was like, it was quite a nerve-wracking experience. And um, I mean, since working at, at Headgear, I, I, I've travelled a little bit. But um, but yeah, no, I've not really. It was it was more just like the, the characters that you meet growing up and that sort of stuff. And they would be like uh, they would be very interesting characters. And and coming to London as well like you it is like a different world from where I'm from yeah. you know it's uh, uh, and you do sort of 
end up a friend like I think all of my friends in London are none of them were like born in the UK or and which is in stark contrast to everyone that I is in my hometown back in Essex right right Um, that's that's so interesting because you probably use um, books film as like um, a tunnel to other people's lives totally yeah if you're because I I know different cultures from just being there and experiencing it and films and books but uh, I also could put a face to certain mm. cultures mm. Um, so I can relate someone I know yeah certain areas of the world um, it's just interesting that it must be a different experience if you pick up a book that's I don't know, based in somewhere foreign that you've never been to. Yeah. I mean, of course, London is, is filled with a melting pot of different cultures and communities, so it's not like you're lacking exposure here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but I know what you mean, yeah. And, and I think, uh, I, I don't know, I think I was just a, I was a very sort of, uh, I had a very active imagination as a kid. Um, and so even if I didn't perhaps recognise what this place might have looked like, I would at least attempt to go. Maybe it looks like this, yeah. um, and 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 you know also like the best uh, stories do sort of paint the best picture that um, you can sort of allow your imagination to run that little bit wild and, and go. Or oh, maybe it looks like this, and oh, wouldn't it be amazing to go and visit there? And yeah. you know, and so yeah, it, it was. Uh, yeah, you're right. I always had that kind of uh, that was my that was my aeroplane. <laughs> yeah. Okay, when you sit down to read, watch, experience a story, what are you hoping for? Gosh, I think just that sensation of uh, of sort of being lost in that world, whatever it is, and hopefully at the end of it you sort of have a different perspective on something, whether it's as seismic as the world or whether it's perhaps as small as a type of person. Um, uh, and the, like, my personal preference is I do like that I still like those sort of fairy tale type stories they still appeal to my senses um, and so uh, yeah I, I think those kinds of those kind of stories that do sort of explore these sort of ver- fairly complex and difficult emotions but made palatable through I suppose fantastical images um, I think that's sort of what I'm hoping for. Something that, like, uh, so for example, uh, A Monster Calls, which has the very difficult subject matter of a young boy whose mum has got terminal cancer, which sounds, you know, terms of endearment times 20, but it's made palatable and it's made watchable through the use of this tree monster that takes this boy through uh, different stories to help him come to terms with life isn't fair, but that's okay because you can make sense of it this way. And I think stories like that are the ones that, and I'm quite an emotional person. I will cry at most things. Yes. So ones that can that can. I have to that admit that first dates makes me cry every time I watch it. Really? Wow. Okay. Well, I'm not that bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, like like I remember reading amongst the course before I saw the before I saw the film, um, and I was reading on the train, and uh, and I, I think I was I must have been sniffing so hard because I was crying so much that someone did just sort of sigh next to you and then <laughs> put a tissue in front of me. Goes <laughs> like, thank you so much. Like, yeah, it's fine, but calm down. <laughs> Which was nice. Yeah, yeah. So yes, that's what I that's what I hope. I hope to sort of uh, yeah explore those very sort of complex emotions, but in a way that like, I think appeals like, across 
the board, I think. Yeah. So let's say you can't explore the complex emotions, right? Maybe this book, film, or theater experience drops the ball. How do you think storytellers often get it wrong? It's usually the point at which I lose patience with some stories um, is when it's sort of... It's difficult to sort of apply this to every story, but there is a point in, in, a, in a film or a book where you go, okay, I'm getting nothing from this and yet we're halfway through and so I can only assume you're somewhat being quite self-indulgent because it, you've given us not very much, um, whether it's you know, characters that just aren't interesting. And bear in mind, there is a difference between characters that are like unlikable um, and the ones that are uninteresting. You can have characters. I mean, like the, I mean, the Joker is out recently, and you know, obviously, it's caused controversy and, and whatnot. But it, it is a film about an unlikable character, but it is interesting. Well, yeah, it's almost like you have a buy-in, or you're rooting for or against that character. Yeah, um, yeah, and or you're sympathizing or empathizing with the character. Exactly. You don't feel anything. It's difficult to even continue on. Yeah, exactly, and and it, that can take different forms like that that point at which you find yourself going, you know what, I'm not really feeling anything. I'm very conscious of my surroundings and everything's kind of distracting because this isn't doing its job. Yeah. Um, and it's hard, to put, it's hard to put a pin on what exactly that is, but I think it's largely down to the fact that, personally, I, I will feel as though, okay, this writer's a bit too happy with their own work. <laughs> like, yeah. <it> is, and <laughs> more than, like, the way that their work is translating um, or sounding. Yeah. Like, they like their own words in a way. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the minute that, that you get halfway through and you can't actually differentiate between different characters, you can still hear it in just that one voice right. and you're still not feeling anything. I think that's the point where you go, okay, this was just for you. This, looking at the writing now, this was just for you because I can't hear a single different person in this. And so consequently, I'm also not, I'm not learning anything. I'm not feeling anything. I can't empathize with anyone, you know? Yeah. So I just go, you know, like, I mean, congrats for putting together this script. It's difficult for anyone to put together a 100, 150 page script. But at the same time, like if, if, I, if I can't hear anything and all you're doing is sort of like listing the problems with the world, get therapy. I mean, like, there must be, like, some, you know, you just have to be engaged with your subject matter a bit more than, yeah. than, than this, you know, like, um, and also it, it, it comes down to, like, a, a lack of research sometimes. Like, you know, every subject matter is complex and everyone will have a different take or opinion on it. It might be about a community that you're not a part of. Um, so do your research, you know, engage with these communities or engage with these subject matters. You know, there are organisations and there are people that will be more than happy to help. Right. And I think if you just, if you push all of those away and just give your own voice on this, that can work sometimes, but perhaps in a, in a, in a book or a film where you have to incorporate different characters, it's, it's very, it doesn't always come out the way they hope. I, I, I just want to echo a little bit of what you just said about, you know, uh, get a therapist. I know for some storytellers that um, some scripts or books, uh, it, it's, it's therapeutic for you. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean you should be sharing it with an audience. Um, maybe it should be a therapy that you, you, you do and you close the book and say, I'm glad I released that. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's enough. Uh, 
I, I do, I think we get, like, sometimes cooking is therapy, sometimes sewing. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't yeah. mean you have to be a chef. No. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think that's what Andy was just saying. Just yeah, like, no, exactly. I mean, you, yes, you have to be conscious of an audience, like, because you are going to present this work. And yes, it, it, you know, that's fantastic that you were able to get all of these emotions out and you feel better as a result. That's brilliant. But if you're going to present it as something that is going to be seen by others and you want them to engage, then sometimes you have to sort of vary your style a little bit to make sure that you're accommodating at least a certain portion of who you're aiming this at. Exactly. Yeah, I get that. I get that. How do you then objectively judge a story without putting your own personal taste, mood, unconscious bias in the process? It's a very difficult one, Matt. Um, I think... Fundamentally, if it, if it comes down to a point that, and there have been several projects like this that I've come across, um, if you if you read something and you don't like it, um, you have to appreciate that is there a mar- you still have to answer the question is there a market for this though, right. um, and so as sort of as cold as that can sometimes be, like you know you're you're not going to be jumping up and down about it, but you also have to understand that you're working in a business that. Uh, where this film does have a place within a certain audience. Uh, And so I think if you do have to sort of separate those two a little bit, you have to separate the, you know, where's the market from, how you're actually physically or emotionally responding to it. Um, And at least that's the way that I've always read scripts because, you know, um, and also even if you don't like a subject matter, you don't like a character, you don't like this part, whatever, Mm -hmm. if structurally... It's, it's put together very well if the characters are drawn out very, uh, you know, uh, very, uh, uh, they've done it, they've done it, they've achieved it very well. If it's cohesive as well. If it's cohesive, if it's all of those things, um, it, you do have to sort of take a, a bit of a backseat when it comes to the question of, but do you like it? Yeah. Um, because you, you uh, may not like... Avengers, but it's still going to gross a billion at the box office. Do you know what I mean? And it's still yeah. going to res- resonate with an, an entire audience that you're just not a part of, and that's fine. But you have to sort of be able to sort of see over that particular wall. It's a very difficult one, Matt. Um, How do you personally know you're doing a good job without external validation? Um, because I, let me just kind of. There's not really certainty with producing a film Mm. there's no real way you can be a hundred percent sure about anything um so when you're making a decision it's quite lonely i imagine um yeah Yeah. (laughs) and i'm wondering how do you know at that point you did a good job and maybe it will flop in the cinema maybe it'll flop um with the audience what are some boxes for you to feel comfortable saying, hey, I, I did the best I could, I did a good job, and I, I don't really need that external validation for that? Mm. Gosh, that's a, good, that's a good question, because, because yeah, like the industry operates so much on that external validation. Um, I don't know. I think, I think again, it, it comes down to instinct again. I think if you know something's working, I think your heart is in it, despite what your mind might say. I think and if your heart's in it and, and, you, um, and you do all you can to help get it made to the best that it can be, yeah, um, yeah I think you know, you'd look, you'd look back on that bit of work and you go, okay, you know what, it didn't, it didn't find its audience, but I can still watch it and still feel something, or I can 
still read this bit of writing and still feel something. And I think um, there, there's almost like a, for me at least, there's almost like a feeling of I finished my homework sort of thing. Like, and you're quite pleased with it. Um, and this is like, the, you've, it's that period where you've just finished it, but the teacher hasn't seen it yet. But you've, you've just finished it. Um, and there's that sort of moment of satisfaction that you can sit back and go, that, was, that wasn't bad at all, was it? Yeah. I, I don't know what it is. It's, it's quite a physical reaction that sort of happens in your tummy. Yeah. And, and it just, uh, it's quite a warm feeling. You go, you know, that was actually, that was pretty decent. Yeah. Um, but yes, of course. Then the the that is very quickly taken over by but what will everyone else think? You know, like so it doesn't linger long. But when it does, like I think I think sometimes you'll know if this is good, which is also like I mean you you'll know it's good if you then want to show it to someone. Yeah. I hope anyway. I hope people just aren't showing you any old rubbish. But you know, like you, I think you'll most people will feel good in this, even if they're not confident showing it to other people. They'll feel good in their own work that okay. If I had to, I could show this to someone. So, uh, just uh, basically, you're saying if you have pride in your work. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Cool. What do you um, wish you saw more of? Uh, in stories. I know for me, I would love to see more comedies. I would love, love to see more comedies. Okay. I feel there's a lot of dark stuff that are, <laughs> that are accessible and a lot of things uh, playing on both of my emotions, a happiness and sadness. Yeah. I would like to just have a goofy good time every once in a while. I think, I think the stuff that I seem to have resonated with recently that I would like to see more of are uh, stories about like you know like uh queer love stories or stories from like the lgbtqai inside the letters here community it, there there is a, a a story in there of of two guys getting together and it's it's done really really in a really lovely way and it's done in a way that is depicted as you know cinema and tv shows have always depicted heterosexual relationships which is we're not drawing attention to what uh you know what genders either these people are it's a love story in the same way that like you know like call me by your name a few years ago was just a love story um and so i think yeah, more of those. I mean, I, I'm bisexual myself, and so I always, like, uh, my eyes tend to water up a little bit more when I see, like, you know, two characters living happily with each other, and uh, and it's done in a way that is not necessarily, like, an issue-led drama. Uh, I, I, yeah, I would like to see more of those, and I think we are starting to see more of them. Um, Booksmart was a little bit like that. It was a little bit like yeah. that, yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, it, it's, it's tapping into that. It's, it's going this character is, is growing up and is feeling these things and here she is exploring them and that's sort of as far as they go when it comes to like you know what the sexuality is and then it's just seeing what people she falls in love with and right. we're all involved yeah. and it's fantastic okay. okay why do you think the no unsolicited policy is in place um I think it's well there's, there's the cynical answer, which is, you know, so you get, so agents are still employed and they can send you stuff. But I think it's more so that, um, you know, production companies will get sent hundreds and hundreds of scripts, even through agents or through producers or people that they know. And it, it's almost a way of kind of just managing that workload is a sort of boring answer. It's just a way of just going, look, it, we, we can't accept unsolicited scripts because if we did, um, copyright issues aside, we would just sort of be inundated with material that we would never be able to get through. And that means you could be missing out on a really great story. Um, and so, it, it, because you've got hundreds of other bits of material to get through, and 
yeah, I think it's largely down to that. Um, I'm sure there is someone much more pessimistic than I am that's going. Actually, it's less. But I think, <laughs> but I think it's. I think it's more that I think you know production companies really do have to power through um, an awful lot of scripts, and some of those scripts will be 90 pages, and some of them will be 150 pages, and so it does take a while to get through each one and give an opinion on. Um, and if you, if it was unsolicited, where it was just a free for all, I think that would sort of burn quite a few people out and means that some stories would get missed that should be produced. So you, let's just say, hypothetically, even though you said you don't, I believe you do. Let's say you know what works. Do you have any tips to help storytellers develop their... Um, yeah, I think it is that thing of do your research, really know your subject matter, um, and be aware as well that you are catering to new audiences now. Um, you know, w at least in terms of like film and now TV becoming sort of this golden age of TV, things are changing now, you know, in terms of the audiences that you're reaching out to, um, which some people are slightly sort of a bit worried about in terms of the theatrical model. Is our cinema still going to be around, this sort of thing? Yeah. Personally, I think it's quite an exciting uh, era because it changes the definition of what we consider cinema to be. There are some people that have never been to a cinema before, and so they define cinema as a, you know, their iPhone or a tablet or a laptop. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as long as the common denominator in a, a, seeing something on the IMAX and uh, watching something on your smartphone is uh, how strong is the story? How much is it pulling you in? How much are you forgetting your surroundings? And I think the, the best stories that do that are ones that do know their subject matter, they do know their characters, like they were family, um, and it's because they've engaged with uh, they've they've engaged with people that have gone through these things or people that understand what it is for this character to explore this. They know all these things and they can talk about it for hours. Um, I think those uh, if writers were to do that, it would be amazing just how much the quality of their stories would change and how much they would find maybe they're even even the narrative changing as well, even if they've got it all structured out. I think it's certainly worth doing that. Cool. Well, thank you, Andy. And um, thank you, the listeners, for listening to us talk about uh, storytelling and hopefully cultivating talent so you can take some of that those tips that Andy provided and run with them. Bye. See ya.